So good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs, and I'm really pleased to see all of you here this evening. We have information on the table in the back uh, about upcoming programs, and I hope you'll stop and check those out on your way out. Um, these Writers Live programs here at the Pratt Library are sponsored in part by a generous grant from PNC Bank, and we thank them very much for their support. Uh, as you all know, the Supreme Court has been much in the news in the past few weeks with uh, important decisions about the Affordable Care Act and same-sex marriage, among others. Um, this evening, we're going to hear more about the Supreme Court from author Ian Milheiser in his new book, Injustices, The Supreme Court's History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. Ian tells the history of the Supreme Court through the eyes of the everyday people who have suffered the most from the court's decisions, from Reconstruction to the present day. He argues that the Supreme Court uh, routinely bent the arc of American history away from justice and seized power for itself that rightfully belonged to our elected representatives. Ian Milheiser is a senior constitutional policy analyst at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C., and he's the editor of ThinkProgress.Justice. He received his law degree from Duke University and clerked for Judge Eric L. Clay of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. His writing has appeared in a wide array of legal and mainstream publications, and he's been an expert, uh, frequent expert guest on major media outlets. Please join me in welcoming Ian Milheiser. Thank you all. I, I've been uh, on trains and sitting in a hotel room for so long that when I actually started talking when I got here, I realized my voice was going out. So I apologize if I seem strained or if I'm constantly sipping water to, uh, to do something about it. I also picked the wrong, term, the wrong year, I think, to write this book um, because we, uh, we just had a surprisingly good Supreme Court term. Um, so if, if all of y'all want to leave now because you don't believe a word I say... I, I understand. I, I really, you know, my, my, my agent wishes that I published this last year during the Hobby Lobby term. But anyways, I will do my best to convince you that actually the Supreme Court is not something to be celebrated. Um, and I guess I should start with the origin story of this book, which is that about, oh God, I guess four or five years ago, right after the Affordable Care Act was signed, um, my boss calls me into her office and she says, um, so you know there are these cases being filed that are trying to take out the law? And I said, well, yeah, I mean, everyone knows about them, but, like, they don't seem serious. And she said, well, you know, it would be helpful if you could write a brief on behalf of um, some groups that support the law. Oh, the law. oh, and by the way, I'll need it in 48 hours. Being a lawyer is awesome. Um, and I said to her, great, I'll, go, I'll get right on it, but uh, do you really think it's necessary? Um, at the time, 
no one really took these lawsuits seriously. Um, you know, there was a very conservative judge who, as the lawsuits progressed, said that uh, the cases have no basis in constitutional law or Supreme Court precedent. That judge, by the way, got the Presidential Medal of Freedom from George W. Bush. So no liberal. Um, there was a poll that was taken on the eve of oral arguments of Supreme Court experts by the American Bar Association, and the poll found that 85% of the people polled believed that, this, that the Supreme Court was going to uphold the law. just wasn't going to be an issue. Um, so I was one of the many liberals who was boonswoggled at every turn by this litigation um, and was really shocked to see that the Supreme Court was prepared – not just to do something that morally I viewed as repugnant, but was prepared to do something that I could not recognize as law. Um, I discuss the legal arguments um, in that case in my book, but I also discuss what would have happened if we lost. Um, I speak about a woman who was raped, and her ins- the insurance companies told her her rape was a pre-existing condition. Um, so they would so they would insure her. Um, I talk about a family in there, um, and the wife had a heart condition. The husband was in a motorcycle accident, and they had enough money to pay for her treatment or to pay for his treatment. Now, no one, no human should have to make that kind of choice, but certainly no American should have to make that choice. You know, the notion that in the wealthiest, most powerful nation that has ever existed, it took us this long to get to the point where people stopped having to make those choices, and the Supreme Court came within a hair of taking that away. It should wound your soul when you think about that. Um, so after we kind of won that case, kind of won it, they did do a fair amount of damage to the law, um, I started looking back at the Supreme Court's history because I wanted to understand how this could have happened. You know, how was it that such a weak legal case that would have done something so terrible came so close to, uh, to succeeding? And what I found is that this, is, this was not an anomalous case. In fact, if anything, the court we have now is much better than the court has been for most of its history. Um, you know, as I discuss in the book, you know, some of this history I think is familiar. The Supreme Court for many, many years upheld segregation. Some of it I think is less familiar. Um, there was a Virginia law allowing a woman to be sterilized against – or forcing – in this case, it was the case was about a single woman, but it led to thousands of people being sterilized against their will. Um, eugenics was a very popular thing in the United States until we fought a war against the Nazis and realized that maybe that wasn't something we wanted to be into anymore. Um, and the Supreme Court upheld that. Um, this woman actually was not intellectually disabled, um, but the court mistakenly thought she was. And the famous line, of course, from that decision is three generations of imbeciles is enough. Um, and I talk about um, how the Supreme Court took over our labor relations in this country for many, many years. Um, some of this involved some of this involved breaking up unions. Some of this involved striking down laws that were supposed to improve workers' conditions. The uh, passage I'm going I want to read involves children 
Um, and I apologize because it's a fairly long chapter, so I'm going to skip around a little bit. Um, the title of this chapter, for reasons that will become apparent when I'm done, is The Price of a Coke. And it begins, in the early years of the 20th century, wedge-shaped buildings dotted the hard coal countries of Pennsylvania, where heavy lumps of anthracite coal were crushed into marketable pieces. There, at the top of each wedge, iron rollers broke the coal and, and, and elaborate screens sorted it by size. Meanwhile, underneath this operation, machines of a different kind culled rock and slate from an endless stream of crushed coal pouring down the inside of the wedge. There, engulfed by clouds of black dust, dozens of children filled each of these coal breakers, where they earned as little as 40 cents a day for 10 hours of labor. Shoots flowing with black... Let me try that again. Black anthracite formed the bowels of these breakers, while boys as young as eight sat on planks watching the stream of minerals flow by their feet. Their job was to spot stray pieces of slate and other detritus that could impurify coal shipments and decrease their value. Men with sticks patrolled the boys, smacking the heads or shoulders of any boy who appeared to be slacking. Anthracite is difficult to distinguish from slate when it is constantly flowing by your feet in a rapidly moving stream, and when you're working in a room blackened with coal dust. So the boys bent low over the chutes to try to tell valuable coal from worthless slate. Just After just a few years of such labor, their backs began to hunch, their shoulders grew round, and their chests grew narrow. As one visitor to the breakers observed, most of them became more and more or less deformed and bent backed like old men. When it was cold, the breakers were barely heated, so the boys donned scarves and hats, and if they could afford them, overcoats. Gloves, however, were forbidden because the boys' jobs depended so much on the sense of touch. At the end of the workday, even if they were bathed in cotton, co- Try that again. Even if they were bathed and costumed in the garb of a mine owner's son, a breaker boy could immediately be identified by his bleeding fingers and by fingernails worn down to the quick by repeatedly plunging into the streams of hard coal. Many of these boys lost fingers. Some of them had entire limbs torn off by the machinery that drives the coal forwards. Others slipped and fell down the, refu- the refuge chutes where, if they survived the coal, they were smothered to death by piles of slate tossed in behind them. The boys who were not killed by the breakers eventually graduated to the inside of the mine where they began their careers by, ten- by tending the mules that hauled the coal to the surface. Boys as young as 10 served as trap boys who lifted heavy doors to enable a mule's passage and, and to and from the mine. There the boys faced longer work hours and the kind of numbing isolation that today is reserved mostly to unfortunate prisoners. When the sun rose on the 20th century, 25,000 boys under the age of 16 labored in the mines and quarries of this nation, often rarely escaping these mines to see the sun with their own eyes. Ultimately, nearly every child who survived their early years in the breakers spent his adulthood cutting coal from the earth with a pick or shovel or shoveling just mine coal into a mule's cart. Many of these boys would never even set foot in a school. 
Those who did were typically too exhausted from a day's work to benefit from their classes. And if they were fortunate enough to avoid accidents and become fathers themselves, they often, often battled a future va- battling the disease known as minor's asthma. It's what they called black lung disease. Skip ahead a bit. Child labor was as much a northern problem as it was a southern problem. But in the south... Cotton mill managers spoke openly of their hope that someday nearly all men, all adult men, would be unemployed, replaced by relatively cheap women workers and even cheaper children. A young boy would enter the mill at age six, earning as little as 10 cents a day for his labor, grow to become a father himself, and eventually be laid off and replaced by his own six-year-old son. Within the mills, Children worked 12-hour shifts, day and night, while superintendents stood by to toss cold water on their face if they began to doze off. Let me wait for the announcement. All right, looks like we're done. Or not. All right. Uh, Cotton dust filled the workers' lungs, creating an epidemic of brown lung disease, a coughing, wheezing disorder that brought brought about by the dust inside the mill. Similarly, many children suffered from pneumonia, brought about by the sudden shift from the hot factory interior to the cool air of the early mornings and late evenings as they walked home from work. Yet the most striking ailment facing the children of the cotton mines may have been the premature seriousness that sets in when a boy or girl barely old enough to attend school is forced to spend nearly every waking moment in dreary monotony. According to one account, an Atlanta woman, thinking to give some of these little victims a treat, asked a number out to play in the country and turned them into the woods to play. What was her distress and amazement to find that they did not know what the word or thing meant? Now, there was a law... There's a law that was passed to stop this. There's a federal law passed by Congress that didn't exactly ban child labor because due to the constitutional doctrine at the time, they had to do it in a roundabout way. So they banned the transit of goods that were produced by children. It took many years to pass this law, and it was supposed to end the problems that I just described. But the southern cotton mill owners funded a lawsuit to, uh, to challenge the law. It's called Hammer v. Dagenhart. Um, and I want to read a quick passage about one of the justices who decided this, who, who decided um, he was one of the five justices in the majority in the Hammer v. Dagenhart decision. Uh, James J- Judge, Justice James Clark McReynolds was, in Time Magazine's words, a savagely sarcastic, incredibly p- reactionary Puritan anti-Semite. McReynolds was lazy. He often would, would not even open the briefs lawyers filed to prepare him to hear a case until hours before the case was argued. McReynolds was nasty. He labeled Frank, President Franklin Roosevelt, quote, that crippled son of a bitch in the White House and shunned his own nephew after the boy woke, up, woke him up by playing jazz music on the radio. McReynolds was a petty tyrant. He ordered his staff never to smoke tobacco, even on their free time, and dictated where they were allowed to live. 
During his frequent duck hunting trips, Justice McReynolds would bring along his longtime servant, Harry Parker, and he would order Parker to wade through the ice-cold water to retrieve the fallen animals in lieu of a bird dog. Though the two men often saw eye-to-eye on the Constitution, Chief Justice Taft dismissed Reynolds as, quote, inconsiderate of his colleagues and others and contemptuous of everyone after serving on the bench with him for some time. And above all, Justice McReynolds was a bigot. He refused to speak to Justice Louis Brandeis for Brandeis's first three years on the court because Brandeis was Jewish. And he forbade contact between his staff and the Jewish justices Brandeis and Benjamin Cardozo. There's no official photograph of the justices in 1924 because the court's seniority-based seating chart required McReynolds to sit next to Brandeis, and McReynolds simply refused to be photographed next to a Jew. Uh, When Brandeis offered his views on conferences, McReynolds would stand up and leave. On the rare occasions when a woman argued a case before McReynolds' court, the justice would exclaim, I see the female is here, and he would walk out of the courtroom. When Charles Hamilton Houston, the Harvard-educated black attorney who mentored future Justice Thurgood Marshall as dean of the Howard Law School, when, when Houston argued in front of the Supreme Court in 1938, McReynolds turned his back on the courtroom to signal his disapproval. McReynolds once warned warned one of his law clerks, and I apologize for some of the language in the quotes I've got coming up. Uh, McReynolds once warned one of his law clerks who had grown, grown close to Harry Parker that the clerk, quote, seemed to forget that Parker was a Negro. He advised the clerk to think of my wishes in this matter in your future relations with the darkies. Though only President Wilson could know why he chose to place McReynolds on the, on the nation's highest court, it's widely believed that Wilson kicked McReynolds upwards in order to remove an unpleasant member of his own cabinet. Despite his conservatism, McReynolds came to Washington as, a, as an effective trust buster and as head of the Justice Department's antitrust division under Theodore Roosevelt. After Wilson named him attorney general, however, McReynolds proved difficult to deal with in the cabinet room as he would later be in the justices' conferences. If nothing else, the Supreme Court was a convenient place to put McReynolds where he would have little interaction with the president. Yet by placing him there, Wilson also placed the balance of power between Taft's hand-picked justices. President Taft, when he was president, put several very conservative justices on the court. Wilson also placed the balance of power between Taft's hand-picked justices and the dissenters in the child labor case in the hands of one of the most reactionary individuals who has ever served on the Supreme Court. Justice McReynolds was the fifth vote to declare the child labor law unconstitutional. Now, I'm going to read one short passage. I mentioned that this is one more short passage. I mentioned that this case was called Hammer v. Dagenhart. Uh, the Dagenhart was Reuben Dagenhart and his brother and his father. Um, Reuben Dagenhart um, was a child who worked in one of the cotton mills. And the cotton mill owners decided, probably for strategic reasons, that they didn't want to be the face of the lawsuit. So they dragooned this family into being the ostensible plaintiffs in this lawsuit. Um, years after, a few years after, maybe about six years after the case was was. Uh, decided, a reporter tracked down Reuben Dagenhart um, 
And I have, I'm just going to read three quick paragraphs that summarize the interview that this reporter had with this now grown man who uh, had been the plaintiff in this case. For Reuben Dagenhart, however, the case that bears his name stood for something else. Six years after the Supreme Court gave him the right to spend what remained of his childhood toiling in a coal mine, a reporter asked Dagenhart what he gained from his nominal victory before the justices. Look at me, Dagenhart replied. 105 pounds, a grown man, and no education. I may be mistaken, but I think the years I put in the cotton mill stunted my growth. They kept me from getting any schooling. I had to stop school after the third grade, and now I need the education I didn't get. Dagenhart was 20 years old when he gave me when, when he gave me this interview. Yeah, let me try that again. Dagenhart was 20 years old when he gave this interview, and he swore he wanted he would somehow sh- save his sister from his own fate. She's only 16, he said, and she's crippled, and I bet I'll stop that. In return for their victory in the child labor case, Dagenhart's employer received a generation of cheap labor and the southern mills won decades of freedom from federal interference. Dagenhart's own share of the spoils, however, were more meager. Reuben and his brother John got some automobile rides when those big lawyers from the north were down here. And oh yes, they bought both of us a Coca-Cola. So unfortunately, the book's a whole lot of stories like that, um, and they stretch. I, you know, I begin. The, I begin with Reconstruction, um, and I stretch very close to uh, the modern court. I think the most recent case that I discuss in here is Hobby Lobby. Um, so with that, um, I guess I'll open up to questions. Um, if you have any thoughts about the book or uh, any questions about the court itself. So I think part of the tragedy that you're trying to reflect is that the august Supreme Court never really cared for the common folk and the people. Um, one of the points that when you're talking about the eugenics case, Buck versus Bell, I think it's important to mention that the author of that opinion was one of the most venerated justices in the history of the Supreme Court, Oliver Wendell Holmes. So if someone like Holmes, who you know came through the Civil War as he did, could do this, pretty sad. The other thing I would say is to use the excuse that, and I think it's, it's very meretricious to say that Wilson just wanted to get Reynolds, McReynolds out of the cabinet. No, I think Wilson, one of the worst presidents we've had, was an ardent segregationist, a racist, classmate of Thomas Dixon, author of The Klansman, which became Birth of a Nation, and who showed the movie in, in the uh, uh, White House was catering to Southern, the question will come. So the question is, is this a matter of anecdotal, or is there something more fundamental in the, in the nature of the Supreme Court appointments, in the nature of what the interests of those in power really are, namely capitalism? So, so it's, it's, it's a good question. Um, I think that there's several things at play that have led the court to be the kind of institution that it is. You know, one, I think, is that lawyers tend to do better than most people in society. You know, we're paid well for the most part. Um, I think that and if you're the kind of lawyer who gets on the Supreme Court, you're probably a fairly elite attorney. 
And, you know, being rich doesn't make it impossible for you um, for you to have empathy for people who aren't as fortunate as you are, but it doesn't help. Um, you, you, you know, I, I think that you're drawing from a class of people who not only are themselves very privileged, but um, are often um, removed, you know, if you're a politician, you have to go back and campaign and you interact with people and you can develop an empathy for their situation that way. But if you're a judge, you know, what I remember from when I, I clerked for a judge is you are literally working in a marble palace because for some reason all courthouses are made of marble. And you get these briefs and they show up at your desk and you read them and like that's what you get to learn about the world. And, and if you want to learn more about what's going on, it's very difficult. There was one case where there was a piece of information. I remember I worked on where there was a piece of information we had to track down that um, – wasn't included in the record, and I discovered that it is very, very hard from the vantage point of uh, a judge's chambers to find something that hasn't been provided to you. Um, so I think that's part of it. Um, I think the other thing, and this is something where I think things have changed. Um, one is that the nature of the legal profession has changed in that it used to be that if you were a lawyer and you wanted to make any kind of money as a lawyer and have a good life and not be traveling around to like every small town picking up the clients you can find, as President Lincoln once did when he was in practice, you had to work for a railroad. You, know, you had to work for a certain kind of interest. And now you, know, you can work for the federal government. You know, there's jobs as a prosecutor. There's jobs as a public defender. There's you know, some attorneys at least who make good money as plaintiff's attorneys. So like, there's other ways that someone can be, reach the elite echelons of the legal profession without, um, without um, you know, necessarily having to represent a certain kind of client. Um, the last point I'll make is that, and this is something I discuss a fair amount in the book, the legal profession is conservative by nature, not in the sense that, like, it votes Republican instead of Democrat, but in the, but, but in the sense that we're trained to read precedents and to, you know, to, make, to help make the law develop slowly. And... In, for much of American history, for probably the first 150 years of American history, the legal profession was very skeptical was, sorry, was very skeptical of legislatures because legislatures could take the common law, which was the collective wisdom of a thousand years of judging, and overturn it in a night. And they found that very scary. And I have a bunch of quotes from former ABA presidents and other very prominent lawyers talk about how terrified they are of democracy because democracy means that you're throwing out this body of law that has evolved over many hundreds of years. Um, and that's something that I think is less present in the, uh, in the legal profession now. You know, I don't know many, too many lawyers who say that it is the very notion that laws are made by Congress is itself a frightening thing. Um, but, you know, so I think there's a number of reasons, and a lot of it have to do with the fact that this is a body of individuals who are cloistered away from the world and are drawn exclusively from a profession, which, you know, I'm a lawyer, there's nothing wrong with it, but that, um, you know, 
is going to see the world in a certain way. Other questions? I'm not sure how to word the question, but it's it's about the psychology of the whole thing. Having worked all my life, I've been in places where there are people that I worked with who are nice. And then every so often, someone comes in who is the rotten apple. And nothing can be done about that person in the system. Are we facing this more in the legal system and in the Supreme Court? Is this something that has always happened? How do you deal with the McReynolds of the world? Are they just stinking people, is my question. Right. So, I, I mean, I, I think it's important to know. I mean, McReynolds was one vote on a court of nine, and it takes five to get anything done. Uh, McReynolds is one of the more repugnant people who have ever served in any position in the, the American government, much less a position this, this high. Um, but often, like, even though people on the Supreme Court present a diversity of perspectives, um, they come together to, you know, for different reasons to do terrible things. You know, if, if you look at the court that existed then, you know, McReynolds was just an evil prick, but um, you had you know, people who were very committed to a laissez-faire theory of economics, and they didn't think that the government should be doing anything. And you had people who, for reasons that I just described, like just believed in the slow evolution of the law and were were um, very skeptical that legislatures should be making it. And when you added that all up at the time, that was enough to get you five votes to do this terrible thing. I think the same the, the court we have now is a lot like that. Um, you know, Justice Thomas is the only member of the court who has openly said he would go back to the decision striking down child labor laws. Um, you know, he has said that he views the federal government's power so narrowly that we couldn't have most of our labor law, we couldn't have the ban on whites-only lunch counters. For some reason, he wants to get rid of that. Um, we couldn't have you know, most of our economic regulation, at least at the federal level, under the way that Thomas has described Congress's power to uh, regulate commerce. Um, no other justice has openly said that. Um, Justice Alito, you know, he's the one that I had the hardest time being the least bit charitable to because he votes very much like a partisan. And I mean, I think that, you know, he has a tough time separating his views from what, on the Constitution. You know, he, he starts with, with the outcome he wants and, re, and, and reasons back to it. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts um, came up in the Reagan administration at a time when, like, the Reagan administration wanted to do very conservative things on a lot of legal issues. They wanted to do very conservative things on race. Um, they wanted to do some very conservative things in the workplace. But for the most part, you know, Reagan won two landslide elections. And one pattern that you see in American history you see that, you know, you saw this with Roosevelt, you saw this with Reagan, is that when a president is confident in their political position, they often don't want to lean on the courts. Because, you know, the, the courts, is, you know, they feel like they're they going to win elections so they can get their way on their own. And so Reagan's rhetoric a lot of the time was very focused on judicial restraint. I mean, Reagan, I think, you know, not that he's a president that, you know, I, I particularly admire, but I think that Reagan was, you know, and the justices that he wanted were much more reasonable on issues of, um, you know, what the court should be doing than, say, Justice Thomas is or Justice Alito. 
Um, and that is, ref I think that explains to a large extent why Roberts has voted the way that he has done on the two Affordable Care Act cases. Because Roberts, while he's terrible on race and he's terrible on campaign finance and he's terrible on a whole lot of other issues, um, does believe that on most issues, legislatures should be making the law and not the court. Um, you know, so the answer is like, there's a lot of diversity on the court. I mean, even amongst justices that I don't like, there's a lot of diversity of views amongst them. But often it doesn't matter why you get to the results you get to once you get there. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm sure that when Justice Scalia wrote an opinion a few weeks ago that would have taken health care away from millions of people, like, I don't think he, I don't think he harbored evil in his heart when he did that. I mean, I thought, I think that he truly believed that he was doing the right thing and what the law commanded, but it sure as hell wouldn't have mattered to the person who's unable to afford life-saving health care because of the decision that he would have written if he was in the majority. We have a question back. Yeah, um, you mentioned lawyers being kind of in a, in a box, and um, they are basically a political appointees. They are appointed by either generally a conservative or a liberal administration, and they have lifetime appointments. Um, there has been some talk, not much, about some type of term limits rather than lifetime appointments. Number one, is there uh, any validity to that or any real possibility that that could ever happen, which is probably um, a, a very doubtful. Yeah, I, I think it's hard to do. I mean, there's possibly a way to do without a constitutional amendment, but it would be difficult and may not work. Um, especially because if you tried to do it without a constitutional amendment, the body that would get to decide whether it's constitutional would be <laughs> the people you're trying to limit. So probably not going to work. Um, I mean, I think that term limits are an interesting idea. Um, I don't know if they necessarily would change all that many outcomes. I mean, I said before that, you know, I don't admire Alito, and Alito is the youngest conservative on the Supreme Court. If I had my choice between between having five Scalias, who is Scalia is the oldest conservative on the court, or five Alitos, I would rather have five Scalias. Um, so, like, I don't think it's necessarily true that like just having someone there for less time is going to lead to outcomes that like I would think comport more with the law. I mean, I think it's certainly true that like there have been cases in the past of very, you know, ju judge, judges and justices who were once very able staying beyond the point where they were able, and, and that's a problem. Um, you, you know, I mean, you just don't want someone making those decisions who isn't fully there. Um, but, you know, I think if I could make one change by constitutional amendment to, like, how members of the court are picked and, and you know, how they, and, like, you know, the, the structure of the court... Rather than doing it on the back end and changing the amount of time they get to stay, I do it on the front end and I change the method of selection. Um, so there's a number of states that have nonpartisan commissions that pick judges. Um, you know, one model is Alaska's model, where there's a body and it's made up of some members of the bar, it's made up of some political appointees, it's made up of, like, I think the chief justice 
chairs it. So it's a combination of people from various different backgrounds. And when you add them all up, like it winds up being much less political than the method that we use at the federal level. And the way it works in Alaska is if a vacancy opens up in the Alaska Supreme Court, um, this um, body submits three names to the governor, and the governor picks one. Um, And it's done such a good job of keeping politics out of the process that there's a woman, uh, Morgan Christensen, I think is her name, who now sits on the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, um, was put there by Barack Obama, Prior to that, she was an Alaska Supreme Court justice, and she was appointed by Sarah Palin. So, you know, if you get those two to agree on something, you know, the, I, you know, my, my, my point is, like, I think that the politicization, the fact that the method of selecting justice is so political, and it's becoming more so, um, is a serious problem. So if I had the power to enact a constitutional amendment, which is so difficult to do, it's... it's practically impossible you know the one that i would pick was i would is i would do something like put an alaska style commission in place some people up front as well uh, yes um this is an opinion but it seems like um <clears throat> if you boiled the constitution down to one philosophy it would be to protect property uh if, if you look at what was going on, say, from 1783 up till 1787, it seemed like, you know, you talk about the state legislature, you had this hyper-democratic trend of uh, forgiving debt, um, lowering taxes. and uh, So if the job of the Supreme Court is to protect, is to interpret the Constitution, mm-hmm. and just an opinion that the philosophy of the Constitution is to protect property, then doesn't it follow that, you know, your subtitle of comforting the comfortable, wouldn't it follow that that's what the Constitution kind of kind of asks for is to protect property, property over people? Could you uh, just address that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, um, it's a very good critique of the original Constitution. If, in fact, if anything, the original Constitution is, is much worse than you describe it because it doesn't just protect, in some cases, property over people but it contains three explicit provisions that protected people's own right to own property that was people. So, you know, the original Constitution was a fundamentally flawed document. Um, The Constitution changed massively after the Civil War. Um, You know, it explicitly banned slavery. Um, The 15th Amendment was supposed to end racial discrimination in voting, although we all know how that turned out for the next 100 years. Um, But the 14th Amendment is probably the most radical thing that's ever been put in the Constitution. Um, The 14th Amendment, the first clause of the 14th Amendment does four things. It says that anyone who's born in the United States is a citizen simply because you're born here. I mean, that was done in part to get rid of Dred Scott because the idea of Dred Scott was that if you were white, then, like, you were part of the polity, and if you weren't white, then, like, it didn't matter what, like, you weren't supposed to be included. And so that was an attempt to make sure that everyone enjoyed equal citizenship status regardless of their race. Um, The second thing it says um, is that there are certain rights that everyone gets because they're a citizen. Um, The third thing it says, and this is probably the most radical thing, 
is it says that there are some rights that everyone gets simply because you're a human being. You know, the, 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 the 14th Amendment doesn't say that no citizen shall be deni- may be deprived of life, liberty, or property without, equ- without due process of law. It says no person. Um, so, so there are certain rights that people have solely because they are humans. And then the last thing is the Equal Protection Clause, which, which was supposed to be a promise of equality, which is interesting because, of course, this was written in the context of race. So we know that one thing that it's supposed to protect against is race discrimination, but it uses broad language. It doesn't say that everyone that there shall be no race discrimination. It says that everyone shall be, that no one shall be denied the equal protection of the laws, which suggests that there is a kind of equality contemplated that is much broader than um, just ending race discrimination. Um, so it's a very radical shift in how the Constitution was conceived. The problem with the Fourteenth Amendment is it is extraordinarily vague. So the 14th Amendment says that no state shall deny any citizen the privileges or immunities of citizenship. Does anyone here know what the privileges or immunities of citizenship are? Because if you do, please tell me. And please tell the Supreme Court because they don't know either. You know, it, you know, it says that no one shall be denied, that, that no person shall be um, denied life, liberty, or property without uh, due process of law. What's liberty? And what is due, how much process is due? And does process just mean that if the government wants to throw you in jail, they have to give you a trial first? Or are there actual substantive limits on, um, you know, you know there, there are certain crimes that are so immense that no amount of, pro- or cer- certain punishments that are, or certain things the government would do to you that are so terrible that no amount of process can justify them. It's an extraordinarily vague document. And so I think a lot of the problems we saw, you know, I spend a lot of time in the book discussing a case called Lochner, um, which came to emblemize um, an era in the early 20th century where the Supreme Court struck down a lot of labor laws. Lochner said that where the Constitution says no one shall be denied liberty without due process of law, what it actually meant was that everyone has to be bound by the contracts they, they sign. So if you agree to, or you know, that they agree to, so if you agree to, and this was the case in the Lochner case, work 14 hours a day, 17, uh, seven days a week in a bakery in New York in a basement where the ceiling is so low that you have to crouch, where there are rats crawling across the floor, and where one of the walls is literally covered in roaches, where sewage drips down from the ceiling onto the floor and sometimes into the dough that they were cooking. And where, of course, this entire operation is heated by these giant inferno-like ovens that bake the bread. So you're sweating constantly as you're doing this work. And then in many of the shops, they would require the workers to sleep on the tables. Where they, so they would knead the dough on the tables. They'd you know, bake them and you know, deal with everything that was going on. And then at the end of the day, maybe they got a pillow. And they'd curl up on these tables where they were working. They'd get up in the morning. They'd do it all again for 14 hours. The Lochner case involved a law which tried to say, how about only 10 hours? That's what the Lochner case was about, is that New York passed a law saying that instead of working for 14 hours a day in a, in a bakery, you'd work for only 10 hours a day. Um, 
And the Supreme Court struck that down because they said, you have a freedom to contract. It is your right that if you want to agree to work, under the, to work the hours that I just described in a New York bakery, then you should have the right to do it. Um, and that's what they found in the word liberty. Um, so, you know, my, my, my point is, like, you know, the, I think that the Constitution has changed in a way, and it's, it's a philosophically very different document than it was at the framing. But because it is often written using language that's hard to pin down, judges and justices have managed to read things into that language that don't belong there. Uh, two questions. Uh, if you were appointed to the court, how would you go about uh, basing your decisions? And you spoke about Alito. Uh, I, I agree with you on on him. I, I kind of admire um, uh, the the guy from upstate New York who served in the late 40s. Uh, I can't think of his name right now. He was appointed to the Nuremberg Commission as the chief prosecutor. Oh, Jackson. Yeah, and my impression for, was that Jackson would look at a case and say, well, decide what was right or wrong based on, right. I suppose, ethics or morality, and then try to come up with uh, a way to justify the decision. Oh, so, so, I mean, the, the, that method you're describing, I mean, that's, that's more like Justice Douglas. So, so one of the most interesting periods in, in American constitutional law is the period um, from about from 1937 until about the 1970s. Uh, 1937 is when Lochner was struck down. Um, it's when the Supreme Court, um, it, uh, four years later, it, it struck down Hammer and, and abandoned the notion that we couldn't have child labor laws. It was the, you know, one of the most important, it's 1937 was one of the most important, if not the most important years in the development of American constitutional law. And what had happened before then was that the justices had basically aggrandized to themselves the right to make policy decisions that weren't given to them by the Constitution, that was supposed to be decided by the legislature. And so the justices, um, the, 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 the justices had a very difficult task ahead of them, which is on the one hand, they were confronted with this very recent history where, they had, where the court had overreached and it had led to disastrous consequences. Um, on the other hand, they had a constitution that clearly called for them to do something. You know, the, the First Amendment's pretty explicit that you can't have government censorship, and who's going to enforce that if not the court? So they, they, they had a document that clearly called upon them to intervene in some cases. Um, and three schools of thought emerge as to how to approach this. Um, one was Justice William Douglas, who spent much of his time on the, on the court wanting to be president. He actually almost became president because he was one of the three finalists for the vice presidency that went to Harry Truman. And, of course, we all know what happened um, to uh, President Roosevelt shortly thereafter. Um, Douglas really was just a liberal Alito. You know, I mean, he, 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 you know, his instincts were liberal, and so he did things that, as a policy matter, I tend to agree with. But, like, as a judge, I don't think that much of him because I really do think that judges should be constrained and that if my policy preferences are going to be enacted, I have to win or someone I like has to win an election. 
And if you disagree with me, you should have an equal opportunity within the bounds of the Constitution to run yourself and to, you know, have your policy positions enacted if you win. Um, so, I, I, you know, I don't think too highly of that approach. A second approach was one used by Frank Furter and to some extent Jackson. Um, and they were so bothered by the notion of... Um, what had happened during the Lochner or how the Supreme Court had overreached, that they called for the Supreme Court to take a very tiny role. Um, you know, one of the cases Justice Frankfurter handled, handled Frankfurt, I believe, was the only Jewish justice on, on, on the court at the time. And there, was a, there were two cases involving uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and um, whether or not they were able to exercise their, their, right, their right to ex- – whether they had the right to free speech and to exercise their religion in a certain context. And the court decided the first case. Um, they said they didn't have it, and it led to this rash of violence against Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean just rampant bigotry. Um, I, I believe it was a, a flag salute case. It was that they, they refused to say the Pledge of Allegiance or something because that's what their faith dictated. Um, and it was after the court said it was okay that to force them to do it, rampant violence. And three or four years later, the court reversed itself because they realized, wow, like after seeing what happened then, we, we clearly made the wrong decision. And Frankfurter wrote an angry dissent, um, you know, bearing in mind that this took place while, you know, this took place while um, the memories of World War II were, were still fresh. And he said, look, I'm a Jew. I know something about religious oppression, but I don't think that it's our business to weigh in here. Um, so, you know, Frankfurter took an extraordinarily small view. Frankfurter and Jackson were very ambivalent about Brown, about Brown v. Board of Education. They eventually voted the right way, but they were so cautious about the exercise of judicial power that even though both of them had politics that were very liberal, um, Frankfurter, I think, had been on the board of the NAACP for a while. I mean, his personal politics on race were very, very good. Um, But he was very reluctant, and it took a long time for him to come around on Brown v. Board um, because he was so spooked by judicial power. And and I think that that approach goes too far as well. Um, The third approach that emerged was Hugo Black. Um, and Hugo Black was not the best person who ever sat on the Supreme Court. Um, Hugo Black had been an Alabama senator, and he'd been a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And based on his biography, you would have thought that he would have been a horrible justice. Um, he also wrote the Korematsu decision, which was the decision, um, which was the decision of pulling Japanese detention camps. But somewhere along the way, he had an awakening, and he became possibly the strongest advocate within the court for desegregation when the Brown, when the Brown decision was coming up. Um, he also believed, you know, the lesson that he garnered from the Lochner era was, look, we have a written constitution, and our obligation, you know, the way we prevent something like Lochner from happening is by hewing as much as we can to the text of the Constitution, I mean, hewing rigidly to it. And so not only did that lead him to where the Constitution calls for equal protection to come to take that very seriously, um, it also led him prior to the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, most of the Bill of Rights did not apply to the states. 
the states were free to violate most of it. Um, and one of Black's major projects on the court is he said, look, those words are in there, was to make sure that the states had to comply with, that, with, with every line of, uh, uh, of the Bill of Rights. Um, there's some things Black did that I didn't agree with, um, and not just before his awakening. Um, but like, of those three approaches, I think that Black did the best job of wrestling with the challenge of being a Supreme Court justice, which is that the Constitution clearly calls upon you to do something, but if you don't have a limiting principle that cabins what you do, you're going to do things that are wrong. You know, even if I agree with you know, the result that you reach, it shouldn't be up to me and it shouldn't be up to you. It should be up to the people who vote. Um, and so I know that that's like sort of a broad and, and vague answer, but I, you know, I think that of the three approaches to the Constitution that emerged during that seminal period, I think that I think that Hugo Black got it right. You said you mentioned that the current court is probably better than many in the past, maybe most. I don't know whether it'd be encouraged or discouraged by that. <laughs> Is, Believe me, I meant it discouragingly. Yeah. Is, do you see, it's looking back and now looking forward, do you see any reason for hope that, that the court will get any better? Are there, do you have suggestions? You mentioned the, the selection process. Any suggestions for what could make the court better? So I think that we're in a, we're in a transitional period with the court. Um, you know, like the reason I say that the court we have now is a lot better than it's been is like, for all their flaws, they haven't struck down child labor, and they haven't said segregation is legal. So that makes them better than most Supreme Courts that we've ever had. Um, the, the reason I think that I say that, that it's a transition court is because right now, even though you have five, or you have a Republican majority on the court, you do have a fair amount of diversity in the philosophic approach to the Constitution amongst the five Republicans. I think that if you know, a Republican is elected president in 2016 or at any other point in the near future, they will not nominate someone like Roberts, and they certainly won't nominate someone like Kennedy because their base won't let them. You know, they'll nominate someone like Alito. Or worse, I mean, there is a very vigorous movement in uh, conservative legal circles um, you know, if you, I cover the, the Federalist Society, which is this conservative legal group that's very powerful, very influential, helped Bush select a lot of his judges. Uh, the Federalist Society used to be all about judicial restraint. Um, now, like at their last conference, they had a panel about why anti-discrimination laws are bad and another panel about why, why they wanted to get rid of the minimum wage. So, like, you know we could have people who want to go back to the Lochner. Some of them are explicitly calling for Lochner to be revived. Um, so, and on top of that, there, when the next president is sworn in, um, there will be, I think, three justices over the age of 80. And one of them, uh, Justice Breyer, will be not that far behind. I think he'll be 78 or 79. Um, so the next, whoever wins in 2016 could appoint as many as four justices even if they, uh, even if they only serve one term. Um, I mentioned before that Thomas has said that he would go back to, the, world, uh, to the, the theory that led to child labor laws getting struck down. There's only one of whom there could be, there could be five. 
Um, so that's one possible future. You know, the other possible future, though, is that you know we could have a we could have a president in 2017 who feels very much the same way our current president feels about who would make a good justice. And if we had five Sonia Sotomayors, um, then you know I think that the court do, could do. I mean, if it's five Sotomayors, Sotomayors really carving out a space and carving out and showing an interest in criminal justice issues. So I think you could see a lot of good stuff done in that space. I think that you would see a lot. You would see probably all the stuff that the Roberts Court has done on race, things like striking down the Voting Rights Act overruled. I think you'd see Citizens United overruled. Um, I think what you would not see, and what I would not want to see, is what you would see if you had five liberal Alitos or five five Douglases, which is that the Supreme Court would just become like the law the lawmaking body, and because they're liberals, they just make liberal laws. I mean, I I, I think that you're you're unlikely to see that. Um, but I think, like, on a lot of the discrete issues that have been the focus of controversy, you know, Roe v. Wade would be reinvigorated um, to the extent that, there, you know, right now there's very little of Roe left. And there could be much more of it left if, um, you know, if we had a president who was, inclined, who was inclined that way. And then the other thing that I think could happen, which would be, you know, a fairly aggressive step by the Supreme Court, but I think a warranted one, is that a seminal um, prong of liberal constitutional thinking since the 1930s, this comes from a case called Caroline Products, is that in most matters, most matters belong to the legislature. Most policy questions should be determined um, by the people who, uh, who are actually elected by the people. But there are three categories where courts should intervene. Um, one is when there's an enumerated constitutional right. So the First Amendment says you get free speech, the courts intervene and protect your free speech. Um, the second is when you have discrimination of a particular kind, whether it's race discrimination. The term that, the, that Caroline Products uses is, is discrimination against discrete and insular minorities. Um, what subsequent cases have gone on to say is What's, what's sometimes called, is called irrational discrimination. When you have discrimination against someone that has no base, where it has no basis in um, their ability to succeed in society, to contribute to society. You know, the reason we think race discrimination is bad is because if you're going to be hired for a job, the color of your skin has absolutely nothing to do with whether you're going to be good at the job. Um, so we don't allow that kind of discrimination. That's why we don't allow discrimination against women. That's why we you know, are finally coming around to realizing we shouldn't discriminate against gay people in that way. Um, there are some types of discrimination that are appropriate. You know, if there's a job and you have two applicants and one of them is qualified and the other one isn't, you discriminate against the person who, who's unqualified. So it's irrational discrimination. It's discrimination that has nothing to do with you know, your suitability. Um, that, 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 um, that the Constitution forbids the government from engaging in. And then the, the, the third prong is laws that are enacted which themselves damage the democratic process. Because if the rule is that most things should belong to the people's representatives, when you try to destroy our ability to pick our representatives, the court should step in and strike that down too. And the big area where I think this court has failed down in that space is gerrymandering. 
you know, that, 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 that's something that there have been a number of, there's been a number of five to four decisions with the five conservatives on one side, the four liberals on the other side, um, dealing with whether the court should intervene in partisan gerrymandering. And if you have a president who thinks the way, you know, if we have five Sonia Sotomayors at some point in the future, then I think it becomes very likely that you could see the court starting to dismantle partisan gerrymandering. Um, so 10 years from now, we're going to have a very different court. You know, like the one thing I could say with certainty is it's not going to look like what it looks like now. It's, it's going to radically change in one direction or another. And which way it shifts is probably going to be decided in November of 2016. Yeah, you mentioned Soto, um, Sotomayor a few times, and I'm just wondering, there's three women, of course, on the court now. Do you think there's been an impact from having that many women on the court? Uh, things are different today or not? I, I think it does matter in subtle ways. I, I mean, a, a story that... so. There was a case a while back, I think that Justice Ginsburg has spoken openly about this, um, that involved a strip search. Um, there, there was a, I believe she was a middle school student, and she was suspected of having, like, I think prescription pills or something, like something she shouldn't have had at school. Um, and the principal called her into, into the office and strip searched her to determine whether or not she was... Um, she had whatever this contraband was. And when I attended the oral arguments in that case, it would make your skin crawl. This was during the brief period where there was only one woman on the court because O'Connor had left and Sotomayor and, and Kagan hadn't gotten there yet. And even Justice Breyer, who normally knows better, see, you know, like at one point I think he compared it to like, oh, well, you know, people strip down the locker rooms. It's no, it's no big deal. That's just a part of being a kid. Um, and I, I mean, I left that oral argument thinking, you know, they're, they're going to do something really terrible here, um, and probably by a lopsided margin. Um, and my understanding is that Justice Ginsburg did not take very kindly in their private conferences, um, to what, um, to you know what they were calling for, um, what, what, what some of them were inclined to do, and when that case came down, it wound up being very lopsided in the other direction, and the reason why is because Justice Ginsburg, who at that point was the only justice who had at some point been a middle school girl, was able to convey to them what it be, would be like and how humiliating it would be and how off-putting it would be if she had been subject to that when, when, when she was that age. Um, so I think it does matter. And I, and I mean, I think it can matter in other ways. I, I mean, the, the other way where we've seen, you know, the, the identity of a justice really matter recently, uh, or at least one example, of course, was the Ledbetter decision, where Ginsburg wrote this blistering dissent. You know, Ledbetter, for those of you who aren't familiar with the case, was a... Um, was a, was a pay discrimination case. And the majority said basically that in order to bring the kind of pay discrimination suit that this woman brought, she had to file it within six months of the pay discrimination occurring. And, you know, as, you know, I don't know what my colleagues are paid. 
you know, it, 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 you know, it, it, if they're all making much more or much less than me, I have no idea for the most part, and I'm certainly not going to figure it out in six months. You know, how are you supposed to do that? You know, walk up to people and like compare paychecks to find out if you're getting paid less, um, and, and just yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, and, and, and so Justice Ginsburg wrote this very strong dissent where she just pointed out, look, the majority doesn't understand how the workplace works. Um, and she understood it because she had been through that. You, you know, I mentioned before Justice Frankfurter, who personally was very progressive on a lot of issues. He was the first justice to hire an African-American clerk. Um, justice Ginsburg... Um, was recommended by the dean of the Columbia Law School to Justice Frankfurter. Was to, you know, um, he was told, you, sh- you should hire this woman. And Frankfurter said, well, first of all, she's a woman, and second of all, she has a kid, so I can't hire her. And, and so, I mean, so, um, so she understood these things. And while it didn't convince the court, it sure as hell convinced Congress. And so Ledbetter isn't the law anymore. Um, so, I mean, I, I, I think that it does matter. I, I mean, you know, I, I guess one more example, which is an agenda example, but um, Justice Sotomayor has spoken very openly about how she believes she has personally benefited from affirmative action. You know, and, and if there was ever a case you would point to as an example of how affirmative action can be successful, I mean, th- this is a woman who, she, you know, she didn't just get into Princeton. She then was second in her class at Princeton. Um, and the only reason she wasn't first is because she was doing so much community service that she didn't have time to be valedictorian. Um, so, you know, she has spoken very openly. And there's... Um, you know, I don't know if affirmative action is going to survive it, um, the Fisher case's second trip to the Supreme Court, which is happening next year. But there was a case they took a few years ago that everyone thought was going to be the end of affirmative action. And at least according to one book that I read, the reason why the justices decided to stay their hand is because Sotomayor produced such a strong dissent that they decided, well, maybe we'll wait a little while to do this because we don't want to come up against that. Um, so, I mean, I think experience matters. Um, you, you know, I mean, it is true that a judge's job is to apply the law and not to write their personal preferences into it, but it is also true that you can't understand the law unless you understand the context that it operates in. You know, that, I think, was the, was the lesson of the Ledbetter decision. You know, how can you understand an employ- a pay discrimination case if you don't understand how pay discrimination happens and you don't understand how people could reasonably be expected to react in the workplace. Um, so yes, it matters. You know, it doesn't matter in every case and sometimes it only matters on the margins, but it, you know, it, it, it does matter. I'm, uh, I'm delegating the microphone here. So. There's a lot of uh, talk about mediation, alternative dispute resolution, for everyday people to right. solve problems because we don't have the time or the money to ever get right. what we think is wrong in us, not even your, in your three categories, we would never get before the Supreme Court right. as an individual. So, or, do you see that as any kind of a help for real people with real problems? 
So I, I think mediation, arbitration, whatever is, you know, is a wonderful thing if you come into it with eyes open. You know, it's frequently quicker. You know, mediation can lead to a more amicable result. Arbitration at least can lead to a quick result because you, know, you get your answer, you don't have to go through tons of trial procedure and you don't have all these appeals. So if, if that's what you want to do, I think it can be a wonderful thing. Um, one very problematic thing that I discuss in the book um, is there's been an explosion of forced arbitration that has been aided by the Supreme Court. Um, so pick up your cell phone contract when you get home or you know, look at your lease um, you know, look at you know virtually any contract that you've been handed um, that 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 that, you, that you've been handed, where like the company drafted it, and you don't get to do business with them unless you would sign the contract that they gave you. Um, what you're what you're frequently going to find in there, and in some industries, what you'll nearly always find in there, is a what's called a binding mandatory arbitration clause, saying that. You agree as a condition of doing business with them that if a dispute arises, you don't get to go to a real court. Instead, you have to go to um, you, know, you have to go to an arbitrator. And of course, the way that the arbitration works is that the arbitrate the um, the company on that that drafted the contract, they're in front of arbitrators all the time, so they know who they want. You will probably be against an ar- up in front of an arbitrator once in your entire life, if that. So you, you don't know what to look for in an arbitrator. So even though there might be some flexibility you know, or like you know, formalistic fairness in the selection of an arbitrator, they know what to ask for and you don't. Um, one consequence of this, um, this company has since been shut down. Um, but there was a company that for many called the National Arbitration Forum that was essentially an arbitration mill that would rubber stamp. What, what they would do is banks would come to them and say, we believe this person owes us a debt. And they signed a binding arbitration agreement. Um, and then, the, then someone, they'd assign it to an arbitrator. The arbitrator would rubber stamp it. And then you'd have a binding order. The bank would have a binding order they could use to collect that debt, even if it wasn't a real debt. Like, like, I mean, there, there's... One case I discussed in here, and this woman actually managed to get out of it because she hadn't signed the contract, but it gives you a sense of just how little rigor goes into what these arbitrators are doing. Um, there's a woman in California with the unusual name Anastasia Komarova. She has a Y in her name. And the reason why that's important is because there's another woman in California who is also named Anastasia Komarova who does not have a Y in her name. Anastasia, without a Y, got into a lot of debt, like something like $11,000 worth of debt. And the bank went to an arbitrator to collect the debt, and the arbitrator signed an award compelling Anastasia with a Y to pay the $11,000 in debt that she had never run up in the first place. So, like, and the Supreme Court has, has abated this. I mean, there, there's a a statute that was enacted in the 1920s that was supposed to um, allow sophisticated business people. So like if, if you know what you're doing and they know what they're doing, you both agree to arbitration, it was supposed to make sure that, that that arbitration would be binding and has applied it more and more broadly to ordinary people. Um, 
there was a case, and, 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 and they've expanded it in crazy ways. There's a case recently that said that you can include a no class, a, a company can include a no class action clause in their arbitration agreement. Now, what a no class action clause means, this was a case involving a cell phone company that allegedly cheated thousands of people out of $30. No one's going to sue for $30. Like the only way that, that, that you prevent companies from doing that is if you can all join together as a class. You have a class action lawsuit, and then it's, you know, it might be a $3 million lawsuit, and then a good lawyer will take it, and you, 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 can, you can push your case. But the cell phone company can now just put a no-class clause in there, and they, so long as they do it they, $30 at a time, they can take as much money from you as they want. Um, and the Supreme Court said that was right. Um, that was right. So, yeah, they said they, they said that the, the, the cell phone company can do that. Um, so this is you know there's, there's been a lot of damage done this is way. Is that on the definition of liberty again? Oh, this is this is just a misreading of a statute. There's, there's this law that was written in the 1920s that said that that was supposed to be limited to one context, and they've expanded it to a bunch of other contexts. Let's take one more question. This gentleman in the back is, oh, okay. I just wanted to say that in Canada, Supreme Court justices must retire at 75. And I also want to say that I was surprised at the uh, selection of uh, Justice Kagan. I don't think we have any Supreme Court justices from west of the Hudson River or who haven't gone to Harvard or Yale. I just think there's an insularity about the current court that I find a little disturbing. It's nice to know we have a big country where there are other people to draw upon. I mean, I'll confess that I'm a big fan of Justice Kagan's, but 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 I'll. I think the problem is deeper than the Supreme Court. It's it's, it's a problem with the legal profession. You know, a big problem you have with like law schools are cash cows for universities. You know, like uh, if you if you have a med school, you have to pay for a lab and you have to pay for cadavers. If you have a law school, the only thing you've got to pay for is faculty. So law schools typically turn profits for universities. Universities like to have them, um, which means that the the more JDs are graduating, many more JDs are graduating than the market will permit. And so I'll admit that I do it too. When I'm hiring a lawyer. The first thing that I do is I take a cut and I look at you know what law schools they went to. I look at you know were they on the law. It's, it's the same four credentials every time. It's what law school did you go to? Were you on the law review? What was your position on the law review? And who did you clerk for? And you do that as a matter of necessity because um, you're just getting too many applicants and you have to sort you have to sort them somehow. Sometimes someone really stands out. Sometimes you get a phone call from someone who knows you and like they manage to get you to look at a res- to look take a second look at a resume that you didn't look hard enough the first time. But you know the whole legal profession is favoring Harvards in a way like I mean not that, I mean not that Harvard graduates do badly in any field. But it's the name. It's, it's particularly pronounced in the legal profession. Uh, question I want to ask you: Who really benefits from affirmative action? <laughs> that's, a, that's a big question. In your opinion? Well, no, it's it's a that, that is a big. 
as a big question. I mean, like limiting it specifically to the context of racial affirmative action, what the court has said, and I, what I agree with, is that affirmative action um, is that diversity is beneficial to everyone. You, you, you know, when I was in college and there were people in my classroom who had different life experiences than me, I learned from them. And they probably learned from me too. And like I would have had an inferior educational experience if they had not been there. So you know that that's what the Supreme Court has said on the subject, and uh, you know they're probably going to change what change that fairly soon. But what they said in two thousand three is that, and I and I agree with it. Okay. I think we'll wrap it up there, Ian. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>